Welcome back, everyone, to the Radiant Others Klezmer Music Podcast. My name's Dan Blacksburg, and today for our big return, we've got the one and only Mark Rubin. Let's take a listen. That's Mark back there that you hear holding it down on the tuba. And Mark holds it down in a lot of genres and on a lot of instruments. You might hear him play bass. You might hear him play tuba like you hear back there. You might hear him play guitar. He might be the producer on the record. He might even be producing a movie soundtrack. He might be writing some songs. And, you know, I, I consider him sort of a, a underground or a guerrilla folklorist and historian, too. So there's really an awful lot that you can find Mark Rubin doing. He plays Tex-Mex, he plays Honky Tonk, he plays some bluegrass in old time, and of course he plays Klezmer. So I met Mark really a long time ago now, back in uh, 2002 at Cherry Hill, at the last year of Klez Camp in Cherry Hill. And uh, really since about 2008, he and I have been uh, pretty strongly connected, first through Alan Burns' Other Europeans project, and really just on our own. Uh, I recently visited him in his home of New Orleans over Mardi Gras, and he and his partner Emily were just incredible hosts for me and Christiana, my wife, to do lots of music and just to experience the city, I think, in the way that it really should be experienced. And that's just one of many things that Mark's done. He's brought Klezmer to a lot of folks in Texas, in New Orleans. You know, it's just, he's really all about it. So I was really excited to be able to actually sit down and talk with him, not only about his life in Klezmer, but also his background doing all sorts of things, punk rock, Tex-Mex, being a Jew from Stillwater, Oklahoma, you name it. And we really get into it this week. This episode goes a lot of different places, from his upbringing to his experience as a Jew in a lot of different scenes in the South. Stuff that those of us who are sort of city slickers from the Northeast or maybe from the West Coast, I don't know about you West Coast people, but certainly for someone like me who's a real city slicker from the East, Northeast, I don't have any of these kinds of experiences. I go through life, eh, I'm a Jewish guy. It's pretty easy. White, Eastern European Jewish guy. No problem. You know, you got to deal with things here and there. I've been lucky to travel enough to some places where I faced some pretty direct anti-Semitism. But, you know, as you'll hear, Mark's been through a lot. And he's come out of it really living life to the fullest and exploring music and culture and community to a really powerful extent in a lot of different ways throughout his life. And so I'm really excited to share this for you. Like I said, we've been away for a while. I think it's uh, been uh, a lot of months since I last put out an episode. And in that time, I've actually been hard at work. I've composed a ton of music for a lot of different groups. Uh, I did a series called Encounters at the Mothership, which was four nights of different music at the, mo- the Mothership in West Philadelphia. All of a sudden, it just closed down, or it probably is about to close down. And I also was a resident, a jazz resident at the Kimmel Center for Performing Arts, for which I wrote a large work called Name of the Sea that was for me 
and a lot of other great musicians and combined sounds from the Middle East, sounds of klezmer, sounds of avant-garde jazz, and a lot of ideas that I've been thinking about, about Jews, Jewish identity, belonging, and what the future for some of our communities are, what our wishes for some of our communities are. And I think we get into that too with Mark. He's got a lot of thoughts, he's got a lot of dreams, and I'm really excited to share all of those with you in this conversation. There's an awful lot that we didn't get to, a lot of the stories that we've shared, a lot of the stories that I've heard from him, but you know what? Mark gets around, and you might find him somewhere close by to you someday, and you can ask him about those stories. So before I get to the conversation, I just want to say that it's really great to be back and putting out this episode, and I plan on putting out more episodes in the next couple months. Uh, We've got some really great ones in the can from last year, including this one. So stay tuned and keep watching this feed. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and review. And, uh, you know, just wherever you're listening to us, spreading the word and letting people know about it really helps. Uh, I'm really excited to share this with people. The feedback I've gotten is amazing. And I want to brainstorm with you all as I'm putting out some more episodes about how to make this work even more stream efficient and more sustainable for me. So far, it's been a complete labor of love, and it's been amazing to do, but it is hard, and that's why there are these big gaps. So uh, I'll maybe be thinking about some ideas to share with you soon, and if you all have any ideas, please share them with me, and we can have a conversation about it. All right, without any further ado, let's talk to Mark Rubin. All right. Whether I care about it. Old school radio days. This is this is the old school radio. I think that we can just yeah right. You, know, you can just talk at. I mean, you know these mics. They yeah, just talk I was at them. Sixteen years in public radio, my friend. Right. Yeah, you rolling, right. baby? What's going we're, on? We're actually rolling. Yeah. Right, just, what are we gonna talk about today? I don't know. Well, you made it to Philadelphia. I think this is the second time you've ever come to a place where I live. Yes. That you visited that you me. Knew about that? I knew. Well, right. Well, you've, second time you visited me in a place where I live, like a physical place, not yes. just a city. Yes, this is the second time we have shared space uh, in, in, my your, in your hometown. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Woo, Mark Rubin. Howdy, friends and neighbors. So we've seen each other three times this year, right? Yes, we You're have. one of those people that I only see when where there's gigs or festivals. Right, I call this a situational friendship. Yeah, yeah. It's like we keep these long conversations, except they like extend over decades. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely in our second decade, that's for sure. Precisely. So, okay, but I was actually trying to figure out the last time I saw you before February. Oh, that was Finland. Finland. No, Kleskamp. Kleskamp. Okay, yeah, Kleskamp. So, but still, that was three years, like three years. Yeah, three years at least, right. Finland was was 2013. That's correct. That was pretty funny. So we're having this conversation and people are going, who are these people? Like, yeah, you know, like, you know. no, we, no. Saw, we saw each other in Malta. Yeah. We saw each other in Finland and we saw each other in class camp. And I think those are like the three times we've seen each other like in eight years. Yeah. Something like that. Right. But then, but well, no, because before that we had class camp every year, mm-hmm. you know, there was right. that it was, it, I knew I would see you at least once a year at right. class camp. And then, mm-hmm. and then we were intensively involved yeah. in the other Europeans, which From was about a, 2008 to 2000. Super, super intensive time. 10 plus, and then plus a few things, 11, 12, 13. Yeah, and we we really went through the trenches together on that, you know? Yeah, it was was a lot of learning experiences in there, right? And and super intensive experiences, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. So we and so you bond under those sorts of things. Right. Someone actually oh, I saw Hampus Moline yesterday mm-hmm. in Syracuse, New York, and right. he said he had seen part of the movie in Weimar. <laughs> right. And by the way, uh, I think some of the people listening to this podcast aren't going to be members of the uh, Yiddish Yiddishist uh, community. So One we'll, can hope. So we'll mention that Hampus is a uh, a drummer in the community who uh, lives in Europe. Yep. Usually I try to. You don't at least mind me doing people's. that. No, no. Okay. We call uh, there's this thing I listen to on NPR. They call it the explanatory comma. <laughs> you know, so because uh, frankly, uh, something that I w- do want to talk about that while we're talking about is possibly the in- the insular nature of the Yiddish what? community. No, <laughs> you know, like like all um, musical scenes I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that's great about klezmer music is that there's no special words there's (laughs) no codified language there's no cotton there's no Um, like there's no insider track there's no no things that people on the inside know cool kids club no no clickishness no no clannishness no tribal nature none of this there's no Um, there's no dirt that you don't find out until you've been in it for a while yeah you know there's uh it's it's all just there's no shul you don't set foot in that's right there's it's just completely welcoming right and, and and all that, and that's why it's yeah. had the, such an impact, such an in, impact the world. in the world, outside of our own I Jewish know. community and within our own Jewish community. You know, I was I was all optimistic about my lack of coaster. And I'll also uh, go on to say, since he got up to go into his uh, uh, into his kitchen and doesn't have a chance to cut me off, um, that for those folks who may be listening that uh, on this podcast, which is dedicated towards, shall I say, uh, members of the living, uh, you know, uh, right. the active and living uh, Yiddish music and culture Well, community. only logistically. You can't really interview <laughs> anybody right. else. Right. And, uh, and, and that the reason why I'm talking uh, right now is that uh, I, you know, I, that's how I met Dan here and that, uh, you know, when, when he was but a tadpole there in the, in, at Klez Camp, uh, one, which was at the time. Uh, the the place where we all kind of gathered, mm-hmm. and that uh, for whatever reason, even though I'm logistically and and in many ways uh, uh, not not a physical member of this uh, Yiddish community, uh, I have been allowed to work within it for whatever reasons. Well, you proved yourself too. I mean, I wasn't there for any of that. By the time I got around, which mm-hmm. I guess was 2002. Right. Uh, you know, you were already one of the cats. Yeah, that's interesting too. This concept, the cats, but these are all these are all you know because you know that I come from a punk rock heritage and a politically progressive heritage that was attached to culture and music, which right. I, which is by the way what attracted me to this culture. Uh, nomenclature and intent and things like that are really super important to me when talking about this culture, especially when addressing it to outside of our culture. Well, you know, it's... Uh, thank you. I don't mean to, to unpack, cut you off like No, of that. course, but just to unpack the moment for a minute, you know, a lot of my action is around the New York scene, and you call New York people the cats, you know? I mean, yeah, I don't know, I I don't know mean, if anybody, I I know if anybody does mean, that right. anymore, but, well, the you know, same, it's, the it's, same a, way it's that, a reference to something. Right, the same way that, like... Um, when I was playing bluegrass music, they called the Nashville guys the Cats, uh-huh, like, like sure. the guys who were putting out the records and touring, and making it vital and vibrant and contemporary. The same way that when the Western Swing guys, the guys who played with the greats, you know, we had our own Pete Sokolos, we had our own people who had played with the master musicians, yeah. and, we, and we got to we called those the guys the Cats. You kind of wake up one day when those guys are gone. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And you don't really realize that maybe. 
you're the guy. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's kind of humbling in some respects because you didn't really, I did not learn from Bob Wells. He was long dead. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But all the cats, all the, all the old men who showed me the ropes, you know, not just how to play the instrument, but kind of like why to play the instrument and, and in what situations and, and what the scene was and what the context for the dances and, the, the nasty jokes backstage and the and the and what life on the road was like you know they they shared all that information with me and now they're gone yeah you know what i mean so it's very weird to be the repositor for that information if that makes sense so when you say the cats it's hard for me because dan i think of you as one of the cats i think of us and uh-huh. we as a living breathing community like we are the cats and i would like very strongly for not just our community but anyone listening from any community living community that's playing music right now to kind of break those bonds and break that idea because we are the cats we're in the moment right now and we're making it happen right now that's that's the only reason why i bring that up because that's something I, I that this talk is something that I want to talk about. I really want to start to go back a little bit in your past and talk about okay. why you feel about these things. Sure. I think there's a lot of well, let's do interesting. That. But I just want to say sure. that one memory, really strong memory, I have, okay. which is why I want to do this, is because I remember my second year at Clez Camp, which was 2003 at the Swan Lake Hotel. Somehow I ended up hanging with you, Aaron Alexander. Frank London, a yeah. bunch of maybe Susan Watts, a bunch of people really late at night sure. in this hallway. And you're all drinking. I was 20. I was not drinking. I mean, people who are 20 often drink, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And um, you were guys were dishing some serious dirt. <laughs> yeah. And telling crazy stories. There was some crazy story about you and Aaron in Belgrade, I think. Uh, and, yeah. and, and it, I was it just was, like... It was Riga Latvia. Okay, yeah. Riga Latvia. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I was just... <laughs> In, I mean, I was transfixed. I was sold. This is what I wanted to be a part of, you yeah. know, just around that. So here we go. We get to, like, del- give a little of that for people. Sure. You know, not just the juicy, you know, abstract yeah, and, crazy stories. But, yeah, but that's it. not the only thing that happens in those kind of conversations. Right. In other words, you know, it was it was identical to the stories that the old men told me. Like the, the honky-tonk guys, you know, the the bluegrass guys, the old-time musicians. The, the story, those stories of life on the road, you know, the from the sublime to the uh, ridiculous <laughs> and, and that in the presence of these other neo-Yiddish musicians, these, I don't like the nomenclature revivalist. I mm-hmm. kind of enjoyed the word reconstructivist, yeah. um, you know, to, not to use a religious term. You know, we, we too have had those very same experiences. And I think what was happening for you is you were experiencing what I did when I was 18, 19, 20. I was allowed in. And frankly, Dan, you were allowed in for the same reasons. It was because, I'll I'll just say it plainly, um, we pulled you out. If we're really a living culture, if we really truly are a living culture, we have to see ourselves, the quote-unquote, who you call the cats. We have to recognize that at some point, someone reached down into the greater pool of available participants in culture and said, you know what, I'm going to take a chance on that guy or that girl 
or that person, let's just say that person, let's use nomenclature properly today, shall we? And we go, who is really working at it? Who really is making this extra effort the way we made extra effort? Who's curious? Well, let's go hang out with them. Let's let them come and hang out with us the way we got to hang out and see if it sets. And it's, look, it's only a one in 10. It's not even that. It's one in a hundred sometimes that the talented, curious, respectful person understands that they humble themselves in the presence of their master, that they serve the music in this case, or in this case, not just the music, but the culture, that they find themselves functionary of the culture and that they learn from the master and that someday they know that they break from the master. And I can't think of any greater example of that than, than in this culture than you and several of your contemporaries who I will not name to embarrass them. But we know who they are because they are the cats working today. So this is a good thing to go back. Well, thank you, first of all. So how did you get so hungry? I mean, I know you've done this with Klezmer, you've done this with Tejano music, you've done this with certain Polish music and mm-hmm. Czech music and a lot of other kinds of music. Um, I thought about that a lot. I thought about that a lot. I think it's an innate desire to belong. Let's, let's give context. Payne County, Oklahoma. I want you to chew on that, ladies and gentlemen. Just chew on that for a second. Payne County, Oklahoma, home of Oklahoma State University, an agricultural engineering school, home of uh, the industrial design school there, uh, was responsible for the uh, shopping cart and the parking meter, <laughs> just so we're clear. Great. Um, you know, it's, uh, it was a teeny tiny little town. It was home of the, of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, all the way into my life, my Boy Scout troop was sponsored by the Ku Klux Klan. And then to be born to uh, a sexually non-normative household that was also openly Jewish, was closetedly non-normative, openly Jewish, and to have a uh, an adopted Kiowa brother, you know, a brown kid, in this milieu, um, that's a visible and constant challenge to your neighbors about, you know, where do you find your place in that? Yeah. So especially in a evangelical environment where the challenge to your identity is made on a regular basis. As a Jewish person. Precisely. However, culturally speaking, my, my, my parents were from the West. They were ranchers. My grandfather was a silver miner, riding horses, shooting guns, baling hay, milking horses, milking horses, riding horses, milking cows. <laughs> these were things, these were things that were not unknown to me. My I was actually, but here's the kicker on Sundays, which of course, as Jews say in the South, were the loneliest days, mm-hmm. um, as you can imagine. On Sundays, I was sent to a, a neighbor who was a Romanian Jewish fellow with his, with his wife who spoke no English, spoke only Yiddish, and was sent to go bale hay and run the tractor and, you know, clean out the stalls and milk the cows mm-hmm. once a week. So that in this very weird sense, even though I was in this 
completely oppressively Protestant environment, there would be this one day where they're off in their evangelical churches. And I spent the day with Tevye the milker. But in, but in the shtetl, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, you know, literally running the tractor and pumping, pumping water. It's amazing how much it's necessary to have some kind of connection. You know, maybe in a place where there were a lot more Jews around, that would have put you in a category similar to some of the other people I've talked to, mm-hmm. where that kind of one connection to the old world is like this opening thing. But it sounds like it was almost more like um, when you're really thirsty and you just get enough water to just realize, or oh. when, you, when you just get enough food to realize how hungry you are. And it gets worse. Because on top of that, it was important that my family go and have at least some attachment to Jewish culture. So we Sunday mornings were spent going to Sunday school in far off Oklahoma City. How far? Uh, it's about 90 miles, 95 okay. miles. Now, we didn't go to Tulsa, which was closer, because, and I'm not making this up, that was the shul we don't set foot in. They would. They had a reform shul there, which had an organ. So my daddy called it church. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we went down to uh, we went down to Oklahoma City and to the congregation there, and which was mostly filled up by merchants, you know, who were descended who made a lot of money in Oklahoma because they weren't racist Mm -hmm. and they sold to the native Americans and the blacks and they cleaned up by doing so the stores there were often called the Jew store um, which is not a pejorative it's it's perfectly understood that the dry goods store in many of these small towns was called that everybody would call it that yeah it was just uh, that was understood also Morris Katz owned the the quote-unquote owned the best uh, in Stillwater Oklahoma my hometown uh, he did so well when he got there that he uh, he would write the bond for any church that wanted to open up. Hmm. Right? True story. And in 1933, you can look this up, uh, the KKK had a big rally in March down down uh, down Main Street, Stillwater. And they back then, it was against the, pap- the papists. I didn't even know there was a thing called a Catholic. They just, <laughs> there was this thing called papists. And uh, they were marching down the street with these signs, that, you, know, anti, you know, all these anti-black and all these anti... And then the last sign, they had hoods on and everything. True story. And then the last sign was, except you, Mr. Katz. Oh, my goodness. I know, this is the, so the dichotomy of living there. And I mean, you know... I've had a crossburn on my yard. I've had rocks, th- bricks with swastikas thrown through uh, the windows on, on Hitler's birthday. We had a swastika on the front door on a regular basis. My father used to joke he wanted to give a course on how to paint them right because they always, <laughs> they always got them wrong. The problem is also because whenever my father insisted that we always have Jewish holidays noted in the paper along with all the other ones, and uh, for instance, he gave a talk one time, and it's listed as uh, the Rubens come to the Presbyterian talk to talk about Jewism, uh, you know, things like that. And this then, is not a long time ago. Either. No, this is 1976. Yeah. Well, this is no blacks, no Indians, no Catholics, no Jews in the public pool. Right. Right. 
So I don't want to harp on this or anything, but like this will, let's say, damage you a little bit. Maybe a little. Especially when, oh, what I wanted to say is that when you make that drive to Oklahoma City and then you get around, oh, here they are. Here are my people. You know what I mean? And you hear them davening, man. And it's the old school Galician or davening, man. It's just like... It's like a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. I like I don't hear this even anymore. You hear the broom trimming, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's just, it's just, it was otherworldly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and uh, and old, and it, it stuck in your ear. You know what I mean? And it it had nothing to do with the rest of my life that I would hear sometimes when we would make Saturday morning services. But uh, on Sunday school, um, these city Jews treated me like crap. Amazing. Because I was another. I talk like I do. I shoot guns. I ride horses. I bale hay. And these were city Jews. And they were not like that. They were, you know, they aspired to be more like city people, city folk. And so I was a bumpkin. So my whole life has been defined by this not being allowed a country identity when I lived in the country and then being denied a Jewish identity when I got around other Jews. Mm. Now, this has been amplified. I don't mind telling you every time. I come back east. I mean, it's. I want your listeners who have come from major Jewish centers to just know how deeply insulting it is when somebody who was born and raised in Meridian, Mississippi, or Fayetteville, Arkansas, or Coeur d'Alene, Idaho when they had to suffer the slings and arrows of their neighbors and still retained their Jewish heritage to then get around their lonsmen in other places where Jewish culture and heritage are completely and entirely taken for granted. To feel the need to laugh or joke or belittle or question these people is insulting in ways I hope my language and the tone of my voice can convey. So I'd like you to take a moment and think about that. Now, it's not for no reason that some of the people involved in our Yiddish musical community come from some of those very places. Where's Alan Byrne from? Indiana. Bloomington, Indiana. Where's Cookie Siegelstein from? I forget exactly. Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. Places where if you, you don't get to choose your identity. Your identity is imposed upon you whether you want it or not. My whole life... When I get around other Jewish people, they just, they say the same thing. They go, where are you from? And I go, Stillwater, Oklahoma. And they just completely recoil and they go, there's Jews in Oklahoma? 
which I found to be just insulting beyond words. Uh, you know, and then, then they go, uh, I go, where are you from? And they go, well, I'm from New York City. And then I look back and I go, they got Jews up there? So it's kind of a dumb question, so I, I wanted to address it. Also, there was a great uh, comedian by the name of Brother Dave Garner who did a, a routine called The Religions of the World, and that's where I got the, the lyric, Southern Jews is good news. Well, a Southern Jews are good news, baby. Southern Jews is a damn good news. Southern Jews are good news, baby. It's just them Yankees I'm a worried about. Well, there's Jews in Oklahoma. Ask the average landsman. You got them down in Mississippi, Tennessee, even sunny old Alabama. Well, heck yes, I say, can Mark Salib, is this to you some news? For New York City seems a mighty exotic to us Southern Jews. Well, we're mostly in the agribusiness, like a Tevya milking cows. You can pick our farms up from the rest by the absence of any sound. Our Yankee kins poor manners, we often must excuse. No pigs in her poke, no, we ain't no joke. We're the down-home Southern Jews. Here's how we live. We take the bacon off our cheeseburger, and we greet you with a howdy, y'all. We drive to Sue on Shabbos in our best-pressed overhaul. You know we're famous for our barbecue. It's kosher beef, so you can't refuse. I got a trucker cap for a keeper. It's a scramble of the Southern Jews. Said now, Southern Jews are good news, baby. Southern Jews is a damn good news. Southern Jews are good news, baby. It's a just of them Yankees I'm a worried about. I've heard you talk about your father a lot over mm-hmm. the years. Yeah. And I guess the question I had, and you, and I actually only feel like I've heard you mention your brother fairly recently. Yeah. And um, where was he in all this? And where was your mom in all this? Was was we have a, there's we have a tortured family story, and because members of my family are still alive, we don't need to go. Into we don't it. really need to go into it. So I guess maybe I'll I'll simplify it. Was your brother? being uh, educated as a Jewish person. We felt it was my, my family, uh, because we're socially and politically progressive, we're very closely involved in the AIM music, uh, the AIM movement, the American Indian movement, which at the time was being tracked by the FBI as a terrorist organization. And uh, we were also involved in uh, with Native American artists at a time when the art community was telling them that they couldn't be such a thing. There could only be Native American arts and crafts. I know this sounds strange to you all, but there was a different time. Um, you, what, you mean like 30, 40 years ago? <laughs> yeah. So we had a very strong uh, involvement and attachment in the Native American community because, as I like to tell people, I never did visit Auschwitz. I had no need. Uh, Every day I walked around a concentration camp. It's called Oklahoma. Um, (laughs) um, The Sac and Fox, the Osage, the Cherokee, uh, the Seminole, uh, the Oglala. (laughs) I mean, I can go on and on. A third of the people I interacted with every day. So um, when when they could not conceive again, uh, we opted to... uh, adopt a Native American. So uh, we found out afterwards that he was a Title IV member of the uh, one of the Kiowa tribes. And so he was raised, he was bar mitzvah, raised in a Jewish household, naturally. But we felt it was important that he also be raised as a Kiowa person. And so 
there were men around that we knew who instructed him in those rites. We had nothing to do with it. And as is their custom, we were to know nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And so we did support him as a fancy dancer. I don't know if you're familiar with that custom, the feathered uh, dancing, uh, which he was a contender and champion in. Um, as members of his family, we would go to the powwows and allowed to dance many of the family dances. But there was a lot of his life that we didn't know about. He actually eventually became a, he followed our family tradition. We, every member, every generation of our family has been members of the United States Army. Uh, I'm actually one of the very few members who have not because I don't believe in that stuff. But he actually served in Iraq um, was responsible for a friendly fire incident and did not receive proper PTSD uh, treatment afterwards. And so life got really rough for him. And so I haven't heard from him in quite some time. Mm, sorry to hear that. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of family sadness. It's, uh, you know, a lot of Jews have a lot of family sadness, right. as do a lot of most people yeah it's rough too uh you know when you think about our you know the iron irony of our family moving here to avoid conscription in the czar's army for example and the first thing my you know my grandfather does is breaks his great-grandfather's heart by joining the military but why to fight fascism right you know so and eventually uh, mm -hmm. a path to the middle class and all those kind Precisely. of things so okay you haven't even gotten back to punk rock yet. Well, we're getting there. Okay, music. <laughs> How's music? I mean, you know, it's funny because talking about punk rock, it's really good that you bring up punk rock because you tell the story and to like my Yankee ears, I have to keep reminding myself that this was not as long ago as it sounds like it was. Precisely. This was not in the 1950s. This mm -hmm. was not in the 1940s. This was in the 70s. Yeah, the late 70s. The late 70s. Mm -hmm. Like, not that much before I was born. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was just so different there. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I mean, <laughs> speaking of <laughs> punk rock, I mean, I'll never forget that moment when I was getting into the hardcore stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, I put on Zen Arcade. A beautiful we moment. Were, I just we want to say this is one of the most beautiful moments in our relationship together. So we're driving somewhere across the Northeast in this van. The rest of a 14-person band is in another van, <laughs> and uh, we're, yeah, we're and in the, equipment the two of van. us. Yeah. We're, in the, we're driving all this equipment around, <laughs> and I put this thing on. <laughs> he puts on Husker Du's Zen Arcade, which I had literally not listened to, I don't know, in 22 years. And, you know, I was just finding out this side of you. You maybe had posted some photos on Facebook of things. And, man, you started pounding the steering wheel and screaming the lyrics. And, and I was, yeah, that was definitely one of the highlights of our relationship for sure. Yeah, man. Uh, so yeah. how did you end up in such a, you know. Through politics. Yeah. Through politics. Um, you know, I came from a socially and politically pro progressive family. My bar mitzvah uh, job, my thing I did for my bar mitzvah was to, to go and protest the Black Fox nuclear power plant. We uh, actually laid our bodies out on the highway and we won. We, uh, we did, in fact, stop that nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. uh, I found out about an organization called Rock Against Reagan. And they were doing these shows and a band called MDC, which stand which stands for Millions, Millions of, of Dead, Dead Cops. Cops. Yep. Thank you. Uh, which, by the way, I, I'm going to say a few things about my father. Um, let me tell you some bottom line things that my father taught me. My father taught me when I was 11 years old that the police were um, murderers, 
that were uh, assigned by the state to control uh, populations, that they were not here uh, to, to, for us, that in fact it was not the Nazis that came for the Jews, it was the police, and that when they come for us, it will be the police and it will be perfectly legal. And that the only, the only respect that the police should be given is the fact that he can kill you and get away with it. Um, which, by the way, seems pretty reasonable in recent events. Yeah, I think um, everybody, more people are understanding this. He was, he was also a military historian, and when I was a kid, he made sure that I, he took me to uh, Gettysburg, Vicksburg, and several other um, Civil War sites. And uh, he made sure that I knew all about the Civil War, and he also said, we are a young country. We've really only had the one yet. So in other words, when you're given this kind of information and then the society around you kind of hammers that home, it gives you a rather jaundiced view. So when you live in the Reagan era, like the Reagan-Thatcher era, and then you get hip to bands like Crass, yep, right, which are, they weren't really bands. They were, an, an, they were Antifa. They were an anti-fascist, anarcho-syndicalist communes that were using music as a way, as part of their culture, part of their overall culture, to lash out against the encroaching fascism of corporatization, not just in England, but also in all of the world. And so it was an international movement against this, you know, what we're fighting against, you know, today. Did you have relationship with people at record stores or did you have like older oh, precisely. guys yeah, who were, were teaching you stuff or like definitely. magazines? I know a lot of people came to this stuff through like Maximum Rock and Roll. And well, there were like zines that. too. Where the they zine, they were like, thing. even before then, there were like these little handmade zines and then you would find at the out, record stores. Right. So the, and the record store guys, it was just like those movies. I forget what it was called. There've been a couple movies about it, but there were the record store guys and late night DJs and access. I mean, TV. you were in a college town. There must college have been college town. radio. Big time. And, yeah. and, and we were, and because we were in Oklahoma, we were a little bit behind the curve, but the good news was the gays and the, and the punk rockers and anybody like the reggae guys and like all the communities had to band together. Like you couldn't have clicks. So everybody had to like go to everybody's shows. Do mm. you know what I mean? So we couldn't like, in other words, it was a wide open scene, you know? So y you really got exposed to everything. I got exposed to beat poets and uh, there's a Don, John, John Giorno was this amazing uh, guy who dial came through. Dial-a-poet. Dial-a-poet. I got to see him. I've never been exposed to him. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I got exposed. And then, you know, I toured with the Flaming Lips, you know, and when they were doing kind of like their experimental stuff. And, yeah. And uh, I remember seeing the, I remember going and seeing the, uh, the Minutemen. Oh, the Minutemen. What I was, a legendary place. I know. I was out and I was actually, I was out and I saw the Minutemen out in the Casbah in uh, San, uh, San Diego and there was this guy sitting, uh, there was this black dude wearing a turban sitting on a, sitting cross-legged on stage playing a pocket trumpet and some old dude with dark glasses playing bowed bass while they were playing it. I'm like, oh my what's, what's going on here? Like, yeah. what the hell are they doing? And then like years later, I find out it's Charlie Hayden, Charlie Hayden and, and Don, Don Cherry. Cherry. Yep. You know what I mean? That, that's the milieu that the hard the American hardcore scene kind of int introduced it wasn't really cutting edge stuff it wasn't just thrashing and these jocks running around banging each other like mm -hmm. we had mentioned this group Husker Du 
the last time that I saw Who's Could Do there in Norman, Oklahoma, evidently they had what was to them a relevatory moment that led to that record Zen Arcade. They started a tune that they were working on and they played it for 22 minutes. Hmm. That was their show. They did this 22 minute tranced out version of the tunes in arcade and it was relevatory. And it, the thing was, is we were there in Oklahoma. It was this crossroads. People felt they could do whatever. We saw Sonic Youth's second show outside of New York City. Oh my goodness. You know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, so, so, and I, and, and we were exposed to so much and we were curious. And so we learned so much, but I was attached more to this political land angle of it. I went to Dallas, um, in 19, I think it was 1984 to protest the, uh, the Republican national convention there. I think I'm the only member of our community who has thrown a rock at a policeman. I think I'm, I I do believe I'm the only member of our community who has been hit by a baton Mm. by a policeman. I know there's members of our community who like to sing about it. (laughs) I'm just, I'll just leave that alone. Yeah, let's just leave that. I mean, I think that says what there is to be said. I'm just saying that like, in other words, that's, that's where I come from. Um, and that, uh, I mean, and I, who did I meet there? I met Michelle shocked. Uh-huh. Because she, who I ended up touring with later, you know, she was right. she shared a jail cell with my girlfriend mm. that night. So at that at that rally, I had to go out like she was there when I bailed my girlfriend out the next morning. So yeah. getting involved in the more political end of it is what kept me involved. That, and what that, age are you at this point? I think I'm about. This is I got really involved in it at age sixteen. I moved out of the house when I was seventeen. I quit school. Because it just looked like a treadmill into the machine. It was just it trapped people in debt, and it was a treadmill into the machine. It was complete BS. It was just high school plus. I was going to college when I was 17 because it was right there. It was utter BS. Gosh, a cup. These people were so stupid, frankly. It was so intellectually denatured. Unless I was going into, like, an engineering school or something like that that I needed those kind of skills for. Well, it's like vo- vo- it's like a Votech for you know for engineering or something. That makes sense or scientific pursuits, but that wasn't what I was going to do. Music was already clearly the thing. I was playing in a reggae cover band. Right, I remember you said that was for, like your first thing. I was making 14-1500 a month <laughs> when you could get a two bedroom two you get a two, four bedroom two story house all bills paid for 90 bucks a month. Wow. So I was living. Why would you? Yeah. Why would you? You know, who knew things that weren't going to continue. And I should mention that what was beautiful about being in Oklahoma again and studying reggae music was all of the greats came through town. They were on their way from a circuit from that did frat houses from Austin to Chicago. Yeah. And so I got to learn from Sly and Robbie. I got to learn from the whalers. I got to learn from the Studio One band, Flaba Holt, Robbie Shakespeare. I took private lessons with every single classic Jamaican bassist. Because you had all that extra cash lying around. Well, no. (laughs) Well, the deal was is I had time. That too. I would just hang out with them. Bear in mind, I did not smoke weed. I didn't start smoking weed until I was 37. Also because if you got caught with it and you were broke, you went to jail forever. That's one of the songs on my record. Right. But... uh, it was this idea of I was interested, I was curious, I needed to find a master. If I was going to master this form, I was, t- you know, I realized I was going to have to find it. And what happened for me was 
it happened one time I was studying with one of these guys and I'm not going to do the Jamaican accent, but he goes, you know, how come it is this little white boy is talking about me? He goes, how come it is this little white boy can play this music so good? And the reason, by the way, the reason, by the way, is that they taught me and not the kids who showed up in their Bob Marley T-shirts and their their dreadlocks is because I showed up with a shaved head and a Misfits T-shirt. All right. Because that's what that's who I am. That's who I was. Yeah. And they said they, they would say that's why you you know you who you are you know you seem authentic to us you seem curious, and this one guy goes man you do this very well, do do you, how about Jairus Farag, like mm. you've you've you're going to need that to go the extra st- I mean to go like I mean the next step the next step is Jairus Farag, and then this is what he said to me he goes he goes come on you a white boy. I said, no, sir, I am not. I said, I'm Jewish. And I could say that because I was not allowed to be a white boy in Oklahoma. Right, it was a different thing than yeah, being out I, I in am, Philadelphia, I, I, for example. Yeah, I am Jewish. And, they, and he rocked back at me. He says, look, son, if you don't know your history, your life will be a mystery. If you don't know your culture, you will live life as a vulture. And there's your moment, huh? And I, I got that when I was 16. Yeah? I got that when I was 16. Like, sitting there with the bassist from the Studio One band, whose name is escaping me. He's also the guy who told me not to smoke weed. And, and honestly, I, that's, I remembered that, too, and just didn't bother. Boy, For a while. did I fall off that <laughs> wagon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying that, like, that was, you know, in other words, I've been gifted these insects. That uh, I guess other people weren't gifted. So you ask about hunger. Yeah, right? but that's but th- but you came in hungry enough, and then you had experiences with people that got you hungrier. Right. I mean, that's what that's how it works. I mean, very few people get all the way on their own. They do exist. We even know some people who are kind of like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put throw them in a room with like a pile of records, mm-hmm. and somehow they kind of figure out how to do it. For people like me. You need that extra. You need you need validation on that. Hmm. And it's I mean, this is this is pretty extreme on your end. Right. Sounds like you had a lot of validation. Still in a situation where I mean, but also very young, but also mm-hmm. very complicated. Did you feel like when he said, and you maybe don't remember, but when he said, you gotta know your own culture. Did you feel like you did, or did you feel like you didn't? I that I felt that that was the first questioning. What is it? Mm-hmm. Is it is it being a white guy from the South who speaks English yeah. and drives a tractor and bales hay? Or is it being a Jewish cat, being a Jewish person? And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Jewish person? You know, what is what was presented to me? You know, what was presented to me was the heroes of the Six-Day War. That was the time. It, right. That was contemporary, that right? That was absolutely contemporary to me at that time. So... In that case, that didn't really appeal to me, and I'll tell you why, is that it still wasn't really, it didn't loom large in my idea of a cultural narrative. Israeli music and Israeli dance didn't do anything for me, especially, yeah. especially when my parents were square dancers. Right. To me, that was dance. Every Thursday, square dance, live band. What's the band? String bass, guitar, fiddle, 
banjo. You're playing those also? I mean, those are the... Well, you saw me. What What did I lug in today? I know. Right? That's, <laughs> That's <a good> point. <laughs> Right? Like, here I'm a 52-year-old man. What are, what, what are the instruments I brought in here today? Yeah, yeah. Right? So, uh, yeah, right. So those, so that's, you know, in other words, at the end of the day, that's the instrumental music. That's the music that I, that is my identity, which leads me to these, this, this, this story is that even though I had this artistic group, um, that took my punk rock background, bad livers is what we're moving into. I found other people who were similarly disaffected in their political and socio progressiveness who were punk rockers, but who also came from traditional music background like I did, namely Danny Barnes, the banjo player, mm-hmm. who's now a, you know, a phenom of a phenom. And what we had done is we tried to take the energy and an attitude of the, what the quote unquote punk rock music and the punk rock aesthetic and apply that to these instruments that we were masters at and this from the traditional background. And so, um, I still had my hand, in other words, in tradition, but I was pushing it from the outside, pardon me, not from the outside, but working at it from the inside. In other words, we knew bluegrass music. We knew old time music. We knew, in other words, the white traditions. In other words, white folks don't make a difference between bluegrass country and old time. It's just their music. Yeah. It shows up in different forms. It's a white Protestant music you're not going to find Catholics playing this music mm. they have their own they have their own traditions yeah. which are wrapped up around different dance forms and different events mm-hmm. which I come to find later Right, right, sure. You definitely sure. got involved in that. Absolutely. So these white Anglo-Saxon Protestant traditions, you know, were the ones that were around and I got expert at and I made money at. Even when Bad Livers were touring, I would come back and play with the honky-tonk bands on the weekends. Right. And this is something that I'm, you know, I made my living at and did for a long time. I was a bassist. Mm-hmm. They always need a bassist. All you have to do is play the damn bass. Then you learn you how to sing back up. Right. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, I learned some songs and I started leading Western swing bands, more traditionalist style, because that's the kind I like. And then, you know, a little bit by little bit, that kind of culture kind of imploded. And now the only people who do it now are from people who aren't from that culture, who play for other people who aren't from that culture. It's kind of, it's gotten kind of postmodern all Mm. within my lifetime. But what's fascinating, I guess the point I'm trying to make is once again about identity is that I chose when I moved from Oklahoma, I was given a choice when I moved to Texas to choose my identity. Mm. This was a new thing. Yeah. Got to choose my identity. Right. And I said, okay, well, Let's 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 give that a shot. You know what I mean? Let's let's be white. Do you know what I mean? And I've got the requisite skill skill set. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And and Ruben, you know, you could you could, you could go either way. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like for not those who freak don't too many not, people not out. freak too many people out. So I tried it out for a good long while.
when I was in Bad Livers, I did get interested in Jewish music, but I did want to lead up to this moment that kind of happened in 1996. Mm-hmm. It looked like Bad Livers were kind of teetering. My buddy Dan had uh, met John Hartford, and it looked like he was going to go run off with John and have a project. John, unfortunately, passed away before they can get that happening, but the damage had been done. And so I was I was on a tour bus with some fellow ba- uh, label mates, uh, the Del McCory Band. In fact, I don't know if uh, our listeners who are from the Jewish world may not be aware of Del McCory, but he is without a doubt um, the tradition bearer, the, the living tradition bearer for uh, bluegrass music, mm-hmm. I would say, who's uh, a genuine original, actually played with Bill Monroe. Wow. Right. And Dell's a friend of mine. I'm going to preface everything I say by this by saying that he is a friend of mine mm-hmm. and that he that everything that he said to me was for my good and that it was correct. I'd heard that there was there was an opening for a touring bluegrass band that we knew. And I'm on the bus with all the boys. They all know me and they know my band. They like bad livers. Right. And I said, hey, you know. I was thinking about maybe leaving Austin and coming up here to Nashville, you know, and playing some bluegrass bass up here. You know, there seemed to be an opening for that. And Bad Liver's touring schedule is kind of winding down a little bit. There was just like you could have heard a pin drop on the bus. You know what I mean? Like there was the awkward silence. And I looked over and I said, well, Dell, I said... What do you think? Yeah, I said, is, do you think I'd, I'd have difficulty coming up here? And he just kind of looked at me, and he goes, well, Mark. <laughs> he goes, I recommend you probably stay down there in Texas. And uh, I said, really? And he goes, well, you know, we do a lot of our hiring out of the church parking lot. And there was a bassist working up there at the time. His name was Mark Schatz. He's a Jewish fella. Clearly. But he is not, uh, he's a wonderful fella, beautiful musician, friend of mine. Definitely not Jewish identified. Right. Right. And uh, and then he kind of like, I said, really, Dale? I mean, for real? Now, bear in mind, this is a time when if you were a Berkeley graduate Yankee boy with no attachment to Southern tradition or culture, could be Catholic even, if you moved to Nashville and just played ball, you could go play in anybody's band. Right. White privilege. Right. Yeah. Anybody could do that. Now, me, who grew up in Oklahoma, whose parents square danced and grew up with that band and listened to gospel radio every Sunday morning on the way to Sunday school. <laughs> you follow? Yeah, of course. Right. I don't get to do that. Yeah. Wasn't the line... Uh... The line was, we already have a Jewish bass player in Nashville. Yeah. That's what I remember. Now, you don't look, forget that one. Now, look, I'm going to repeat what I said before. Dell is a friend of mine. He said that as a friend because he wanted me to avoid, you know, complications. And I thought, now, look, that was a past. Things may have changed. I know for a fact that the, the bluegrass world that existed then doesn't exist now. But again, this is not 30 years ago. Yeah. That was 20 years ago. Right. And that, so, and that, and that what that did was it just poof, that was it. That was the end of any of, of my career in white Anglo-Saxon Protestant music. For yourself. For me. That was it. it Makes was, sense. It was the end. For instance, just like the guy told me uh, when I was 16, 
that was the end of my career in reggae music. I mean, poof, right there. I mean, mm-hmm. I could no longer, I can no longer go anywhere with that. And here it was, okay, I can go fight this one right here, but to what end? Yeah. Now, here's, here's where it gets even weirder. <laughs> Bear in mind, at the same time, I'm, I'm enjoying success with movies. I'm doing two movie soundtracks and I'm doing, yeah. I'm doing like, and I like, this is not like I'm, I'm being very, I'm at, I'm at the apex of my career. This will be my halcyon day. So I yep. think I really, uh, I was, you know, I'm in control of, you know, million dollar budgets and my, my band made well over a million dollars those years and so each year. So, uh, You'd be surprised how much the take home, how little the take home is on a million dollars. By the way. <laughs> There's a lot, oh, of, lot of lot of hands in the pot in between here and there. Oh boy! But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. How, how do you make a million dollars in a year in the music business? Start with three. Oh man! <laughs> but um, you know what had happened before then. To, to, to let's roll back about my involvement in Jewish music was. That thirst also in the back of your mind, it goes back to when I lived in Texas and I became curious about the Texas traditions that were around me. And I had met a guy named Frank Motley. And Frank Motley was a punk rock and roots rock DJ in Houston. And he knew everybody. He knew Los Lobos and Dave Al. He knew the Blasters. And he knew all these guys when they were first coming up. But he also knew the hardcore bands. And he also knew... Flaco Jimenez, and he also knew the local. He knew the local Zodico bands. Like he knew, it, like if it was hot and happening, and it was good, this guy knew it. And he's the only guy, as I like to say, you would see at the Butthole Surfer show and at the Flaco Jimenez show. Like that's a guy you want to meet. Yeah. Right. So it turns out that he knows all these great young traditional musicians. Like who were at the who were my age at the time twenty five twenty six right, and so he had this deal he had these parties he'd throw at his house and he'd get us all together and we'd all hang out, and at this first party I met a guy named Brian Marshall who was a Polish fiddler right and I knew this other guy from a rock band that he was in I'd met him before he's playing accordion in a rock band but he was a Czech accordionist his name is Mark Alata Mark Alata was so damn country that he didn't know what a key was. Wow. That he had learned accordion from old men sitting next to him and humming tunes. Like, seriously, this is how old country he was as far as his learning of of Czech music. And Brian Marshall was the same way. His his grandmother taught him tunes on harmonica. Mm. And, like, these were modern people. They had modern jobs. They lived in Houston. They were as modern as anybody. But when it came to their folk culture... And the way that they had learned, it was a hundred years ago. And that was what you really were looking for. Well, I'm not like looking for, but that's like, this is what we're all looking for. Uh-huh. I mean, like, this is, it's not the question of authenticity. It's like, it's a, it's a question of this is a living culture. This is an unexamined culture. Mm-hmm. These are communities that exist and do these things, whether we're looking at them or not. Do you follow? And they don't care if we're looking at them. And in fact, when we look at them, they get a little worked up about that. Yep. So because these guys were my age and they were my friends, they we got along really well. But there was a little bit of suspicion involved because here was this Jewish fella with us who knew honky-tonk like they all did. We all played honky-tonk. We can get together on that. 
but he didn't have his own band. Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? So there was a little status anxiety for your on your for end. me on yeah, my yeah. end. There was a touch of status anxiety that I had, and I felt a little left out. So, you so resolved to do something about well, it. Well, I, I was like, well, they've got a point. So I went on this big trip trying to find the music. And what's funny about that, this is a whole other conversation, was I'd found an Esma Pova record. Mm-hmm. And uh, that record took me on this journey where I ended up, I went and found Greek rebetic music. And I found Turkish Romani music. And then I found Lautari music. I mean, I went on this journey, man. I'm like, as you well know, because you uh, the other Europeans, you heard all of my research. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this is this has been a 30 year journey from this point. I, I studied all of this other music before I found on my hands and knees 278s in Lawrence, Kansas at an antique store on Main Street. I found 278s. I found one of the Bobreaker Capella. Uh, it was broken, by the way, uh, with Dave Taurus featured on the clarinet. And the other one was uh, the I Abramovich. Uh, Kalibazetsin with the Ukrainian SSR uh, Jewish state radio you know what I mean like I found these 278s and they were like holy cow you know my introduction to our our music the Yiddish music was not through quote unquote revivalist recordings it was f- through my study of the old 78s I was looking for Bob Wills or I was looking for Eck Robertson or Dallas String Band records but what I found were these and that's when it like, that's when it hit me. And right about that same time is when Henry Sapoznik found me, and Henry found me through Bad Livers. He was a huge Bad Liver fan because he heard what Danny Barnes was doing on the banjo. Yeah, and banjo players realized that this was a genius. They realized that this what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I flipped out because I'm going, is this the is this the Henry Sapoznik? Oh my God, the Henry Sapoznik? Now, yeah. see, people from the Yiddish community are no, going to go, what is this guy talking about? Okay, people, you listen real close. There is a whole generation of people holding a banjo right now because Henry Sapoznik was a member of a group of people who basically reinvigorated the Clawhammer banjo with a record called Melodic Clawhammer Banjo. There were three volumes of it, it was groundbreaking groundbreaking it it turned so many people onto the banjo yeah and i was like that's the guy then after that he went on to make another record of classical banjo music which is now a huge fad it's just another example like way ahead of the curve on both of these things and so i'm going wow this is like a banjo specialist like an old-time hero you know, and he goes, wow, he's calling me. He's doing this thing. It's Jewish music? Holy cow. So he invited me up there. To class camp. To class camp. And it was just a mind blower. When? I guess that was a year before I met you, sir. 2001? I think so. Wow. No, 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 no. 90, uh, 93, maybe? Yeah, I'm not that old. 93. I think it was 90. It's real fuzzy. It was 93. And the true story is, is that uh, Jimmy Gutman was supposed to be on base for the dance the first night, mm-hmm. but he uh, he couldn't make it or something. So the bandstand was uh, uh, <laughs> Lawrence Glamberg on the piano, Margot Levert and Merlin Shepard on clarinets, uh, <laughs> Lauren Brody on, on accordion, and there was uh, and, uh, uh, gosh, uh, David Licht on a drum kit, mm-hmm. and there was nobody on base, and I had my tuba right there, and they threw me on stage. 
they just threw me on stage. Yep. And it was just into the deep end. I didn't know anybody there. I had only a, I just didn't really know the tunes or anything. And that, that was it. They threw me in the deep end in that world. Did you, how was the, I mean, had you heard enough of the harmonies? I, I mean, this will get really wonky for a second. Okay, but let's just get like, wonky. But like, you know, were you playing five chords or were you playing the minor seven thing? Fives. Yep. Yeah, you could hear you could hear where it was supposed to change, but you didn't know it was nope, supposed to change. Played fives. I was just wondering about fives that. Fives and fours. There you go. That fives must have been, that must have been great. I, oh, I, it was awful. I'll it was bet the it worst. Was. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, but like I, I I had this. It's like I felt that if I was going to be, I hate to use this word, authentic mm-hmm. in my relationships with the other traditional musicians that I worked with, I had to meet them as an equal. Yeah, that makes total sense. I had to meet them as an equal. They were kind of, it sounded like they were demanding that a little bit, even if not explicitly. Right. In other words, you don't. I'm not going to be intimate with their communities, if with any suspicion. I'm dancing with their wives. I hate to say that. I mean, I mean to be just ex- as explicit as that. You know what I mean? I'm going to be. I'm going to be at their weddings. I'm going to be at their important events. They need to know that I have my own house to go home to, mm-hmm. essentially. And the amount of respect that that engendered was and remains to be. The fact that every time that I go and do like Ashokan, like I just did, it, 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 they're so happy. They're mm-hmm. happy for me and they're proud. They're proud to know me in that respect. They, that they, those communities, take pride in knowing that they work with someone who is. Uh, beloved by his own community in that respect. Yeah, who knows they, where they're coming from. And they take pride to know that I've been involved in their community as well. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 been a, it's you know, we're just friends. It's the thing. It's my Michigas. It's just for me. You know what I mean? It, it may not. It's other people have other experiences. Other people have other motivations. Well, sure. Right. But this is something that's been super positive and for me, and it's really, it's it's really been. It's 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 it's. I think, if you look back over my career thus far, I think it's why I get placed in the situations that I do get placed into. Mm. That I'm able to every time that I meet another culture, I feel confident that I can meet them. Hey, dude, we went up against Treme, dude. Right? You let, let's take a moment. You oh, at Montana. Me, you and me. It's the, the Montana Folk. We Festival. were just at the Montana Folk Festival. Our music went up against on Treme stage brass band. the the Treme brass band. They seem like they've been around, and we held our we held our heads high, man. Yeah. Our culture, which sometimes doesn't have the same kind of easy confidence and and, and you know dexterity that the New Orleans culture does, I feel very strongly that we're at a place now that we have that same that we live inside our music and that we have people who have lived inside our culture long enough to where we represent very well. That felt like a very gracious and successful I, thing. I, I, and that's, I'll be, I'll be frank with you. That's one of the first times that's happened in my life. And where it's I, and been I, successful. It's been successful. It's fall. I've been, I've been in those situations where we have fallen down on more than once mm-hmm. and it's been embarrassing, but frankly, but that, hmm. I, no, I, I don't, mind, I, believe I don't it. mind sharing that with you, but, but that was no dude. The, uh, I, I remember you right oh, afterwards. It was, you were I'll, cry, I'll cry about it right now. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> dude, it was so great. <laughs> no, I've lived long enough. I've lived long enough. It's good. Yeah. These are my wins. This, these are my wins. You, so, you get know. to have wins. Oh, it's awesome. You get to have good wins. It makes up for the other things.
Back to my point, there was that time that I'd made that record for Santiago, and I'd gotten When it, was that, by the way? Um, I think the first record was 91, and he got the Grammy nomination, but it wasn't until 93 or 94 that I'd lined him up a, a touring deal in Netherlands and France, and I sent the paperwork over to the uh, promoter. This is... Back in the AOL days. Yeah. That was wonderful. And uh, I get this note back, and it says, Mark, there's a problem with these uh, names on here. It has you listed as the bassist. And I said, yeah, I'm his bassist. I've been his bassist for years. And it says, oh, oh, no, 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 no. You see, Mark, uh, if we needed a white bassist, we could get one here. Now, if we could bill you under a Spanish name and you not speak any English while you're here, then maybe we could make it work. Whew. And so, you know. That's pretty messed up. Well, no, that's, that's where we're at. That's the business. That's the European world music business. And so it was like one of those like, okay, take the hit. Take the hit and learn. Flow, flow. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Everything everything for a reason. Okay. That's the business. Cool. No problem. So it is nature over nurture. I can't play bluegrass. You follow? You following along? Right. It is nature. No matter what Santiago says, he doesn't, you know, by being a brown person, he doesn't get to control his bandstand. He doesn't get to say who. He gets no say. You know what I mean? I don't get any say because Dell does because of his privilege. Mm -hmm. You follow? There's, there are rules here. And you don't get a choice. Mm. You know what I mean? This is all stuff that I address in my, on my record. That's what the record is about. 
is is having to navigate these things. Yeah. You know, and so this was the this was the thing. I got a call from that same promoter, and I go, well, what can I do since I can't come with that? And he goes, well, you're Jewish, right, Mark? And I said, yeah. And he goes, how about a klezmer band? Now, what's a guy do? Put, put together a klezmer band? That's what he does. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, there are a lot of times when I'm not happy that I grew up and I'm living in a time with no music business. Mm-hmm. But there are some times when I am. Yeah. I mean, that's what we, that's what you contend with. I mean, it's like, it's like my black friends in New Orleans. I tell them to work it. When I first moved to New Orleans, I was promised a lot of work and I I lost it all to two young African-American kids who came into town. And the deal is, is I get it. They should, they should have it. Yeah. They should have it. It's black music. Black people should be playing black music. That's how how it works. Like, yeah, the problem is not that. You need to be playing that music. The problem is that you don't have a guaranteed basic income so you can afford to eat <laughs> when you're dealing with all this stuff. You know, and it's, it's, I, there's other things I get. I, I get to not be hassled at a t- when I get pulled over. Yeah, for example. For example. These are, these are important things. But I'm, I'm just saying that, like, this is so when now we're speaking solely to the Yiddish community here, I had no intention ever of ever joining this community. I had no intention ever of teaching in this community. I had no intention ever of performing in this community. I'm just a kid from Oklahoma who grew up playing bluegrass and country. I'm just a kid from Oklahoma who was in hardcore socialist punk rock bands. That's it. I didn't speak Yiddish. Nobody spoke Yiddish in my family. My dad had like two Jan Pierce records. They went, you know what I mean? Yep. Like, I have no attachment to this community. I am essentially a phony. Now, I've done my level best I really have. I've worked really, really hard. And I'm a bassist, mind you. And a bassist can move pretty easily in different cultures. And that's how I've been able to pull it off. That's how I've been able to work in so many different communities. Because as a bassist, you're not called upon to do all of the emblematic um, mannerisms in the lead and middle voices which create a, an emblematic sound that 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 has the that that identifies a cultural sound hmm. um what you do have to know is you have to know dance beats and you have to know the emphasis of the rhythm <laughs> you gotta run that motor <laughs> right so and each culture has a different place to put that of course right and if i have any mastery at all I tend to feel that I'm pretty damn good at knowing where to put that. Yeah. I, I mean, if and I, to do it emphatically. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So in other words, if I've got, and, and I don't know if you've noticed, Dan, but like when I teach at Klez Camp and, and the thing that I'm best at 
is in the ensemble, mm-hmm. is in not how to play your instrument, right? Necessarily, but kind of why and where to play your instrument. You know, I don't teach cracks. I don't. I'm not good. Yeah, on no, it's things. a different so thing. It's a different thing. So my, my thing has to do with more with orchestration and and that sort of thing. Because because I'll be frank, this is I can't teach about the sh- the stuff I don't know. So when I get around our community where people are going you know where people have a uh i don't know how to say this properly but i'm just i'm just going to speak for myself i have been put into a ghetto and i am doing everything i can to make the most of it and so that's that is that's where i am at as far as the people that you interviewed and i pe- never thought of you as someone who ended up here as like an anti-choice as a sort of last resort thing. I mean, that being said, you've you've carried on some of the other relationships you have, but I actually do think we I want to like sort of fully transition into <laughs> this klezmer music which, you know, you've taken on as a big part of your life uh, and as a major yeah. identity for yourself whether you were forced into it or not. Well, that's what I want to say is that I'm doing my level best. Uh-huh. Like I don't much like when I was growing up, as much as I wanted to get along with my neighbors, as much as I didn't want to be pointed out, you know what I mean? As much as I wanted to be part of my community, I wasn't allowed to be. Maybe I'm just projecting. Maybe it's just another way of, of, of coping. But I do feel as though these walls were put, you know, this is like, here's the place we've got for you, Sonny Boy. Mm-hmm. And that that may just be my own, once again, my own Michigas, my own experience. So I've have in my, you know, in my experience in this community and you may, you know, I'll just, once again, this is my experience. I've taken a certain amount of flack from people, you know, cause I've been around for a while. Yeah. Um, and I've taken a certain amount of flack for maybe not getting a little further into the depth of certain contexts of our culture and our community. But uh, like, for instance, learning how to speak our language. Um, well, you're talking to right, <laughs> but that's but that's also because uh, that's not kind of my you know I'm an archer, and I've yeah. got and I've got a goal, like I've got a target. So let's talk about some of those targets. I think that you know you you told me a while ago. It's like Dan, it's time for me to do one of these. I uh, I got a lot of things to say, and you've already said plenty of stuff. But I think right. you, we, you know, I think it is important for people to know where you're coming from, and I think you've done a really good job of even explaining things in new ways for me. So, you know, you've had a really good career in this music too. Mm-hmm. You toured with Frank oh. London and the Klezmer Brass All Stars for yeah. a long time, doing yeah. really great things. Um, you it's, know, it's been by the way. I mean, like, there's one way, and then there's the hemming way. And, you know, (laughs) and, like, when I go back and I look at uh, my achievements overall, um, the things that loom largest, you know, the the achievements both – but I'm not talking about commercially. I'm talking about they have to do with the life dollars Mm -hmm. and have to do, like, with experiences. None compare. None compare. With those that I have experienced playing Yiddish music, well, it's, and, a, it's and, a funny and, and, thing because that's there's something that's really energizing about your home base, whether you decided to be there or not. Yeah, wearing your own skin, as it were. No, well, you know, as as you, you know, told us, sometimes it's it's other people who get to choose the skin for you. Precisely. So yeah, I mean, 
it would be nice to get some fun anecdotes of those things, but maybe we'll, we can save that for like a clip show or something like that. I think we got a lot more important things to talk about. I don't know where you want to jump to. We could jump straight to today and what you see and what's interesting for you and what you want to see for us. I mean, really wherever you want to go with that, you know, but let's talk about like a life in Klezmer as somebody who's done it for a long time. Yeah. The situation that we have right now, in my opinion, is that Folks in our community, when I say our community, I do mean the people who speak Yiddish and are attached to the culture that's wrapped up around our language. And in our case that we're talking about today is music and dance, right? Because for our purposes, I don't believe there is such a thing as music. I believe that music, dance, language, dress, cuisine, uh, theater, poetry, these are in, these cannot be, uh, Uh, separated that they are all one thing Um, I feel very strongly that uh, these things that we have represent an identity for us that our community for whatever reason decided to abandon and that in my experience when I was growing up as a young Jewish person I was not exposed to it and that I feel very strongly that it was hidden from me, in fact, and it was done so on purpose. And that in my experience, working within this community, I have met people, Holocaust survivors in particular, but just older Jewish people who have given me, uh, I like to call it that they've held diamonds in their mouths, that they just, they gave them to me, and that this is all they had. And that they just asked one simple question. Would you please carry this on? And then I I know that other people um, have had other experiences. And that maybe they haven't experienced that. And so they, they don't feel that way. But once, you know, once you're sitting in that hotel room in the Paramount. And the guy is sitting... Across from you. And he sings you the song. And you learn it. I mean, uh, you have to sing it. You have to sing it for somebody else. It's the least you can do. So, politics and all of these other things and modern concerns uh, are immaterial. That... It's incumbent upon us, and when I say us, I mean our community, to at least leave room at the table for our customs and traditions to continue. As, as someone said, as I was sitting around the table the other day, that the past uh, gets a vote but not a veto. This idea that we definitely need to move forward, um, but we cannot leave stuff behind. And so... Uh, this idea that our Yiddish culture is not defined by 1933. And that narrative needs to just stop. It just needs to stop now. That, there, uh, that we have a living, active Yiddish community and that that community is not necessarily religious and that it has a proud tradition that's wrapped up with a point of view 
and that uh, that whether young Jewish people in America know it or not, there will be a time, and we don't know when it is, that they will be identified as Jewish, whether they identify as Jewish or not. And I'm here to tell you that you here listening to me now, if you live in America and you live on the coasts, I'm going to guarantee you, you have no idea what is going on in this country. You literally have no idea. Because as you well know, when I was touring with my group, the Atomic Duo, from 2009 to 2011, I crisscrossed this nation, literally, literally crisscrossed this nation, same time that we were touring with uh, other Europeans, if if you'll recall, avoiding the coasts altogether. And I called Trump in the air. I knew he was going to be president the moment that he announced, because those of us who live in the South, in the Midwest, in the flyover states, we live in a different world. And you may have your attitudes and your opinions about what's going on in this country, but I guarantee you, from the conversations that I've been having, especially with Jewish people that I know, um, the conversations that I've been hearing are so off base. I feel very strongly that a goodly number of young Jewish Americans who do not identify themselves as being Jewish are going to wake up soon and find out they're Jewish and that it is incumbent upon us as a community to give them a place to go. classes in New Orleans because I see this I see this being an issue and they come over a couple of them every now and again one of them comes over and he we have these we basically just talk we just BS and talk and I play him cantorial records and I spout rom-bomb and stuff at him and you know <laughs> and you know and uh 
and uh, play, I play him Taurus, and I, you know, I say, listen to this, and listen to this cantorial, and listen to this, and listen to this Yiddish theater, and listen to, the, you know what I mean, and listen to this Yiddish comic, and listen, you know, get this stuff in your ear, you know, get this stuff in your ear, listen to, you know, listen to this, uh, listen to this Nagunim, listen to this, put it in your horn, you know what I mean, like, go home, pl- put it in your horn, and, one, and, you know, after about one of these three-hour sessions, one of the guys goes, Hey, Pops, man, I, it's Tuesday. I got to go do my regular Tuesday night stand. He does a 8 to midnight stand at Spotted Cat down on uh, Frenchman, famous room. In New Orleans, we don't use PA systems. We just sit in the corner and play. And that way, also, the patrons are right up on you. I mean, they're, they're, literally, they're right up on you. And so we keep the t- tip drawer by the door so people pay as they come by. And so uh, my student is, uh, is on reeds, and he's sitting there. He's closest to the door. And at the end of the night, there had been a country boy. This is typical uh, folks coming in from Mississippi oftentimes to come into New Orleans and blow their pay or whatever. And uh, some guy, some loudmouth had been in there. He'd been buying all the drinks, and he'd been putting a bunch of 20s in the tip jar. And uh, show's over. It's like 1245, and they're clearing out the bar. And uh, the guy comes by, and uh, he pulls out a $20 bill, and he's about to put it in the tip jar. And he goes, looks over at my man, and he goes, hey now, sonny boy. And uh, didn't quite get your name. And he goes, oh, uh, well, it's Joe, sir. He goes, yeah, I didn't, didn't, get, didn't get your last name there, son. He goes, he goes Joe uh, Goldberg, to wit, the customer, then launches into a loud, long list of anti-Semitic pejoratives. And my poor man just sits there, not knowing what to do. I mean, who would, right? And the thing is, there's no support. Now, I only know about this because I get a text at 3.45 in the morning. You know what I mean? Yeah, nobody else knew what to do either. Well, I'm just saying, that's my point. Like, yeah. that's, that's, that's where we're at. Yeah, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. No. We, we have to be prepared and we have to have an identity that meets that at a level playing field going back to what i said before we have to have a strong living vibrant a socially progressive point of view that can meet that point of view we need to have a home base Okay, so then where have we, where can we do better? And, and obviously you're operating in a geographic area right. that's a little different than the one that most of us who are on the East Coast. Right. You know, there's, it's just a different set of things. Right. Let's say resource, let's pretend there's resources for all this stuff. When you say, what do you want to, when you say resources? Well, like, for example, if you decided that you said, we need to be going out all over the place and playing for different synagogues and then teaching people. Did I say that? No, but you might have. <laughs> I don't know if you actually did. Have I you said that? Nope. But for example, if we were supposed to like travel, let's just assume that's possible. Okay. You know, so what kind of things do you want to see? Okay, this is what I'd like to see. When I'm introduced to a cat and he's got a shunness punim, right? And he's got a last name like Kaplan, right? I go, cool, man, who you playing with? And they'll tell me, right? Uniformly a band mimicking black music for tourists. 
<laughs> which, sure. is, which is what I do. That's yeah. how I make. That's how I make my money. It's uh, the the black musicians that I hang out with too. Say that's your job. That's what you're here to do. Mm-hmm. They're not going to come see me, as they say. <laughs> you know, they're not going to come to my neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I want to make a bumper sticker that says "New Orleans, where a white guy knows his place." <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Right. So uh, thank God somewhere. Yeah, it's true. I know parts of Baltimore. Um, so, and like, essentially, I just, you know, like you plant a little seed, you go, Hey man, like, check this out. There's this whole other world. Like, and you know who the gateway has been for all this, man? Hmm. Do you know who turns all the jazz boys on? Pete Socolo. Yeah. For the old jazz thing. Cause he can speak that language. I know. So you, so in other words, you have a gateway. Do you know who it works for the old time musicians? And that's who we're at. That's my Ballywick. Me and Henry. Yeah. Like, in other words, this is what Craig Judelman is doing right now. Mm-hmm. Like, and he's a fine example. In fact, I'll be frank with you. Um, it's what Craig and I call the mission. And it just starts with this. Hey, man, you are an expert, uh, you know, you're an expert Italian mandolinist. Or you are an expert um uh, bagpiper, or you were an expert in somebody else's music. Boy, you're really good at that. Could you play me a singular Yiddish melody? Just one. Could you play me just one? Could you take all of this time and energy and effort that you made to go build an addition into someone else's house? that you will never be allowed to live in ever, right? Could you just play me one tune? Just one. And that's the question I ask. So, and but it's but, a check. Okay, that, so that's, this, is, this, is, this is good. Right? I think this is important. So what, what about us who can? What about those of us who can play a lot of tunes? Okay. What, what, what are we up to? Like, I know where my work has been in terms of community building it's doing it locally right it's doing it with jews and i think for me one of the calls to change has been around trying to figure out uh, a jewish expression that makes room for and includes people of non-ashkenazi descent hmm. because wild. Really? there's a lot of people That's out there crazy. who are you know lift every voice man look the thing is, is that you ask me this, and I'll tell you something that jazzes me, jazzes me, big time, when you talk about the people who can play, the people like yourself. All right. Do you remember, maybe you don't, the last night of the original Klez Camp? You mean in 2014? Right. Of course I do. Okay. Your old buddy Mark got a little lit. <laughs> Unusually so. Unusually so. And I do remember, I don't know, maybe pontificating a little bit. Also. Also. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But about that time, I had gotten my little scene of Austin people rolling. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautiful. It was because, let's be honest, let's talk about this just for a second. There's something about the the alleged so-called, it's a stupid name, millennials, that has to do with peer-to-peer teaching. There's something about this idea that uh, the master-servant relationship towards education and transmission has is, doesn't suit them for some reason. So they, there's an attachment to peer-to-peer training. I don't understand it, but it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll work around that. That's okay. 
it, it will make it work. It, it'll, it'll be cool. The thing is, is that that's what they did. They started a peer-to-peer teaching thing where we would get them to come up to class camp, and then they would go back home and peer-to-peer teach. Mm-hmm. And it would be great. And then, then they'd bring in, and I would start it with just like a little lecture and then playing some stuff, and then we'd all get together and play. We'd do this once a month. And it just started with seven people, and then it was 12, and then it was 15, and then it was 30, and now it's like 45 people, and they've got like a band, and they bring in Sherry Mayrick comes in and teaches them, and you know, like they, they are rolling. They don't just have they don't just have a band. They have a community, and if you're even mildly interested in that music, you can easily find them. You follow? I just yesterday was playing at a Jewish home for the aged in D.C. with Howard Unger and Howard Unger's amazing D.C. Klezmer workshop. They built group. quite a thing over they there. Are, they have they built it out of nothing. Literally nothing. This goes back to what I yelled and screamed at the members of our staff. Stop it with the me, 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 I need another gig. This is a we. We have to look at we. Each one of these, I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to speak directly now to every single person in our community who has drawn a paycheck from any one of these organizations, Yiddish Summer Weimar, um, Klezfest UK, Klez of uh, California, Klez Camp, Klez Canada, Yiddish New York. If you've put a shekel in your pocket from any one of these places, then I challenge you now. You go home to your little town, I don't care where it is, or you go to whichever borough or neighborhood it is in whatever major city that it is, and you set about to create a monthly gathering, be it in your home, be it in your shul. By the way, JCCs around the United States are enjoined to have to give a room and space to Jewish organizations that meet regularly, by the way. That's how we did it in Austin. Mm. You have to. I'm challenging you to go and give your gifts away. Go and teach. Do it. You've all taken money for this. It is time to give. We do not have a culture of professional money at this anymore. There is no more culture of, of academia anymore. There is no longer a culture of master and servant. This is a we. I'm going back to what I said before. There is no difference between a performer and an audience. There is no difference between a teacher and a student. This is entirely all of us together. All zusammen, all a breeder, all a fester. Do you understand? This is entirely egalitarian. It has to be completely from the bottom to the top, not from our camp down. Each one of these cities that these people, what's the number one thing that each one of my students says to me? I've learned 
all of this that you've given me. And when I go to ever, whatever X city, I have no place to do it. It's incumbent upon every single, every single instructor to go and foster a community in every one of the cities. So you ask me directly, what do I do? That's what you do. The nuts and the bolts mean nothing to me. Each person is going to do it individually in the manner in with which befits their personality and their point of view. How did I do it? I'll tell you how I did it. I had a front porch. I invited some people over to my house. I told them, this is what it costs. Someone has to make macaroons. Extra points if they're chocolate macaroons. I don't care. <laughs> um, I'll take arugula. I'll take arugula. That'd be nice. But... But macaroons, right? Someone's got to bake them. Why? Because we're not just going to talk about music. There has to be some other Jewish culture involved. There's got to be cuisine or poetry or something. Someone's going to have to show up with not just music. Because we're just talking about music. We're screwing up. Mm -hmm. There has to be more. So I invited them to my house. I make it today. We're going to talk about doina. Where does doina come from? What makes a doina? Right? I'm going to play a bunch of doina, take your thumb drive, take a little bit of these home, ask me some questions. Here, let's play a few. Hey, here's three pages. Let's play down some pages and jam. This sounds like fun. Once a month. That's what I did. That's how I got that ball rolling. I don't live in Austin anymore. And that thing's rolling because it, they'll get rolling on their own. If we can no longer, we are the people we're waiting for. It's each of us is incumbent to do this on our own. It's yep. Tuesdays at three o'clock at my house in New mm -hmm. Orleans. That's what it is. I throw up in the house. Come and ask me anything. Now, I'm going to go back one further about what, what me and Judelman and other string band musicians talk about, the mission. Do you know how many thousands of active folk musicians out there are Jewish and know almost nothing about their own music? Mm -hmm. And that is my target audience. Great. That's who I talk to. And... The other thing is, too, is that there's a lot of older Jewish musicians who are turning into older Jewish people. And what happens to older Jewish people is they tend to get a little more Jewish. Have you ever noticed? And I've had two experiences now in the last two months with very famous and very accomplished old-time musicians, one a fiddler and one a banjo player, who have all of a sudden become super curious about Yiddish music. And that, that's where I've been focusing my attention because you want to talk about outreach, that's, that's real outreach. You know? So that's, that's what I've got. That's, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, it helps me personally reconcile these issues that I've been struggling with so long about being able to travel again in those communities and still be able to retain my Jewishness in them. You know, I'm just now working with a project with uh, Sasha Lurie and, uh, and Craig Judelman called uh, uh, Lebedek Yankee. 
where all of the songs that have been collected on it are from American sources, North American sources, either Montreal or America. And so the point of the recording and the point of what I'm up to right now is how come it is you go to a folk festival. Now, how come it is and you see Irish bands and you see bluegrass bands and you see Cajun bands, right? These are all immigrant communities, but you don't see a klezmer band. You'll see a klezmer band on the world music stage as if you see where I'm going. Yeah, of course. I mean, we just did one of these. You see what I'm saying? Although I actually felt like in that situation, it was included in a different way. Although maybe you don't feel that way. Well, I'm just saying that like I often, like for instance, my, my, my gang in Austin, they always get on the world music, best world music list. Well, sure. You know, and this is insulting. This is an American music. And that's what I'm fighting for. That's like, in other words, this is an American folk traditional music. It is no, it is no less traditional than Cajun music. It is no less an American traditional music than Tejano music. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That it's that it's been too long, and that there are too many Jews operating in American folk traditional music for that not to happen. I feel very strong that one of the reasons why so many Jewish American string band musicians feel disconnected from the klezmer quote unquote community is because they see the clarinets and the accordions and they hear the the brash the philly sound you know what i mean they 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 hear that sound and they feel disconnected to it they, uh-huh. don't, they don't they can't relate to it not being aware of the string the more string string band sound that that, yeah. that exists and so by presenting that i see that as being a a, a, a gateway to those folks and giving them and also allowing them to still retain an americanness in it yeah you know so that's i mean that may that may be utterly meaningless uh, to the folks who are listening, who are on to this podcast, from I don't the, think so. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that, like, this is a this is more of an outreach to the generalized folk community, and it's it's a super super small. Like I say, when I was putting out my Jew of Oklahoma record, someone asked me who my target audience was, and I said, 52 year old Jewish guys raised in Payne County, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. like that. You know what I mean? Like that's the that, that's one of the reasons yeah. why we make art. Yeah, it's it's a very 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 small little. Uh, uh, target group, but I do believe that there are folks like that, and that if you want to talk about keeping a healthy culture, it's it's allowing what I said for when you know a young good Jewish fiddler named you know Lonestein, you know who doesn't place at the fiddle festival in uh, Southwest Virginia and gets called a kike on his way out to the parking lot. Um, you know what I mean? Like when he's having second thoughts of what the heck he's going to do, right? Uh, the, there's a, there's a place to go. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's a fool's errand. Who knows? But I, you know, I think I got well, maybe twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven years left. You know, I, I think I can, I think I can pull this one off. Hmm. You know what I mean? Well, more power to you. <laughs> Honestly, I think that I think we nailed it. You think you got it? You think you got everything? You can't. We're not going to go anywhere bigger than that. So, you, you want to hear the Regal Latvia story? <laughs> we'll turn the mics off for that one. <laughs> Ask Mark in person for the Regal Latvia story. It's a good one. It's, it, it's a remind me. It's how Aaron Alexander lost his hat. <laughs>
Well, that was Mark Rubin. And full disclosure, that conversation was from last summer. And I'd say since then, there's only more thoughts, more experiences, and more ideas that have been thrown around and worked on and talked about. So, I don't know. Keep track of Mark. He's always up to something good. Or maybe he's up to no good. Maybe both. But anyway. Well, uh, you know, I know this was a long conversation, a pretty long episode. But I also know that a lot of you folks have some long drives up to Close Canada this weekend. So, maybe uh, it's not so bad. But anyway. Uh, yeah, listen to Andy Statman rip back there. This is from a great performance with Mark and Andy back at Ashkenaz some years ago. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. That's all I got. And uh, I'll be up at Quest Canada next week, and then I'll be back here hard at work on some new episodes and, of course, a lot of other stuff. So in the meantime, stay tuned. Keep up with me on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, Instagram. And uh, let me know what you think. Let me know what your ideas are, any guest ideas you have. And that's all I got. So in the meantime, thanks for listening and good Shabbos.
Andy Stantman.